Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry. On today's show, we'll learn about a new group forming in Luzerne County designed to lend hope to young people recovering from addiction. We'll get the details of some changes at a popular local camp for kids in Wyoming County. And a retirement expert gives us some tips for creating brighter golden years. A national organization focused on giving hope to young people trying to get their lives back together during recovery from addiction is ready to offer its guidance in the Wilkes-Barre area. The goal of the group, Young People in Recovery, is to assist in obtaining employment, housing, and education. On Sunday, May 21st, the chapter kickoff event will be held in the Downtown Arts Building, 47 North Franklin Street in Wilkes-Barre, from 2 to 5 p.m. We recently sat down with Darlene Duggins-Magdalinski, who serves as chapter lead for Young People in Recovery, also known as YPR. Her life experience led her to involvement. I was a young addict, and I got clean almost 25 years ago, and this became something personal. So I can personally identify with young people in recovery, and I want to be that voice for other recovering addicts, and I think I'm a perfect example. When you look around northeastern Pennsylvania right now, what do you see? I mean, you've been out and about. You're an activist. You do a lot of public events. You do a lot of public speaking. What do you see in our community that concerns you? I see that this epidemic is getting nothing but worse and worse. I started out in 2005, now it's 2017, and I see a lot of my children. And I consider the children in the community my children. They said it takes a village to raise a child. And a lot of these kids have come to me and talked to me about personal issues such as drug addiction. And when you see that these kids are constantly abusing drugs and because they have no outlet, nowhere to turn, no one to talk to, that's a big concern for me. So having YPR where we can be able to give them some type of beacon of hope where we can help them with employment, we can help them with housing, we can help them with education. Maybe they can be able to inspire another young one such as what I'm trying to do. In terms of these people in our community who are young and getting addicted, Some of them are very, very young. And I think that if we look at our community holistically, we have to see that there is a real opportunity at this moment to divert them from that kind of path, which could be very problematic as they get older. Absolutely. Just to share with you something really quickly, it's amazing you brought it up about the young kids here in the community. Actually, we just lost another young soul to 
drug overdose. And actually, this kid used to hang at my house. And my daughter called me some days ago, just hysterical. So when I looked at that, it became more personal to me to know this is a kid that hung at my house, that hung with my children, went to high school at Myers, and now he's no longer here. I just want to know what is it that we can do? What is it that we can do as a community to come together and we can change? We can re- at least help YPR reduce the stigma of addiction, help these kids to, to, again, give them some type of hope, to give them, you know, something to do. Because young kids are not just using drugs for recreation. They're using, there's a reason behind everything. And we, we want to find out what is that reason so that we can be able to help them. You've been going to school a lot to study these kinds of issues. I know you recently graduated from Misericordia University and you're going on to get your master's degree from Widener. When you were in school and and you were talking about these issues with your professors and, and your classmates, was there any kind of consensus as to why young people are choosing drugs? Is it escapism? Is it because the world is so painful? Is it because they just simply enjoy the high? Were you able to kind of work with other people and try to come to a consensus as to why this is happening? What it all boiled down to is just interacting with my classmates, interacting um, with my various professors. It all boiled down to trauma, especially like in their childhood, you know, why they were so young. So, it again, it can it, it varied, but, again, I believe a lot of things that has happened to a lot of young adults as well as adults, people just don't choose to just wake up in the morning and say, I want to, you know, use drugs. There's something that traumatic has happened to them, and a lot of times when those issues that has happened to them, when they're not dealt with, then they use drugs as a, the best way I can say it is, use as a coping mechanism, you know, as a route to, to try to mask the pain. And unfortunately, that's not a good route to go. But again, that's one of the things that I have learned. For the most part, again, no one just wakes up and say that, you know, they want to use drugs. And that's not what I did. I was raised up in poverty. And, you know, a lot of times you feel like there's no way out. You know what I mean? Um, and sometimes you just don't get the memo that, okay, you're not supposed to do this or you're not supposed to do that. But you live and you learn. And hopefully, you know, we can be leaders like ourselves can encourage the young ones and say, you know, there is some hope and there is a way out. And sometimes you just don't feel like there's a way out. And we want to be able to give them that hope and and allow them a way out. Again, by offering, again, the education and offering them housing and and employment. Some people have records and they feel like no one's going to hire them. So then that just trickles down into a whole other domino effect. And we want to change that. In your own recovery, which happened a, a long time ago, 25 years, that's a long time ago. What was it in your life? that made you decide that enough was enough? And do you share that story with other people who come to you and say, Darlene, I just don't know. I have a son, I have a daughter, and uh, they, they just can't stop or they just won't stop. What stopped you? Actually, I thank my sister. Actually, all of my family obviously continued and continue to try to get me to stop. But I remember when my sister made a call for me. And I always tell people, I never knew I wanted to stop, but I just didn't know how to stop always wanted to live. And another thing I tell people too is I looked at my daughter. I says, no one is going to take care of my daughter, how I'm going to take care of my daughter. So my focus was my daughter. She was my hope. And I just focused on Ashley. 
And when I focused on her and said that I'm going to take care of her, she needs me, that was my aim. That was my goal is to be there for her. And I never looked back. I knew that I wanted to live. I just couldn't stop because people don't understand, you know, addiction is really tough. And I'm speaking from personal experience that people say, okay, just put it down. It's not that simple. But I know that if you really put it in your mind and in your heart, you can do it. And um, I've done it. And I've been through a lot. And I just thank God that, you know, I'm here today to be able to share about it. And when you talk about that component of hope, the things that you're going to do with young people in recovery are to give them real options for the future so they don't have to feel that this is it, I failed, there's there's no way for me to get out of this trap of failure. You're going to actually work with them to create paths to the future that are, are positive so that they don't have to feel hopeless and in fact they feel the hope that you saw when you were trying to recover and your daughter was there. Absolutely. I don't look at failure as failure. I look at failure as opportunity in disguise. And that's what I'm going to tell them. Set goals. Because when you set goals and you accomplish those goals, then you want to set more goals. And that's how I ended up here with now working on my master's. I only went to Luzerne County Community College when I originally started school. I went there to just get a social science degree. Now here I am, ready to work on my master's. And that wasn't part of the plan. But because I was so super excited about, okay, I just accomplished this. You know, I was a high school dropout. I wanted more. You just desire more and more. And that's what they're going to do. They're going to desire more. And it's just going to hype them up and make them so excited because people don't understand when you're in recovery, you lose your license, you lose an apartment. So, yes, that's important to be able to have a job. It's important to be able to have housing. It's very important to be able to have education. All the things that YPRs offering. I know from personal experience, it's so important. It may not be important to some other people because they already had it and they never had to deal with the issue of losing it. But what about the people that didn't get that opportunity to have it and now they have it? That's important. This program is available in other areas, right? This is a a program that's kind of growing and we have some in northeastern Pennsylvania and now you'll have a, a base in Wilkes-Barre. Absolutely. We have a chapter that's in Scranton, PA. We have a chapter that's in Wyoming. We have a chapter that's in Philadelphia. We have over 100 national chapters. Pennsylvania is second from Texas with having the most chapters throughout the nation. So I am so, so super excited. And hopefully we can get even more chapters here in Pennsylvania and we can just keep this growing. But to be able to have 100 national chapters is an awesome thing. Even Obama thinks this is a great thing that what we're doing here. So again, I'm just super excited about it. And I think that we have a lot to offer Luzerne County. What is it about young people in recovery that struck you? I mean, there's other organizations out there. There's there's many. But what about their mission or what about what they do struck you as something that you wanted to be a part of? When I looked at their mission and when I looked at their vision, I knew two years ago that I wanted to do more in the community. And when they wanted to be able to help young people in recovery, I was a young person in recovery, and I am still recovering with having, like I said, going on, having the 25 years clean. Also, looking at them wanting to offer workshops, offer forums, wanting to educate the community, wanting to educate the lawmakers. This is what I want to do. This is what I go to school for. So I feel like I have all of the 
assets. I feel like I have what it takes to be able to get the job done, to be able to tell the lawmakers, to be able to tell the community that this is a great program that we can offer our community that I feel will be very effective. That is what attracted me and said, this is what we need in Luzerne County because the epidemic of overdoses, of drug addiction, of substance use, substance use um, disorders, and alcohol use disorders is really getting out of control. And someone has to step up to the plate, and I'm willing to do that. You also mentioned to me that uh, part of Young People in Recovery is community feedback, that you will be able to uh, look at what's happening in the community because you're asking people to come forward and talk about what they see and keeping those channels open, I think is important. Absolutely. We're going to be starting a community chat as well. And with that community chat, we don't just want to say, hey, this is what we're offering you. We want you, the community, to be able to come to us, to be able to tell us what are the unmet needs, what is it that you want, so that if we don't have these services or these resources to be able to help you, we will get them. We want to be able to bring this community together so that we can be more healthier, we can be more safer. And we don't want to be in the national news stating that our area is something negative related to drugs. We want to be in the national news with saying something positive. And that's what our goal is, is to, again, reduce the stigma of, you know, drug addiction and, again, try to get something positive going on here in our area so that we can give not only just the young people in recovery, but all people who is in or seeking recovery, give them something to do. Because also we're going to be doing social events as well. We got to keep it fun. You got to have fun with it. A lot of people are resistant about having a conversation regarding addiction. They try to keep it quiet. They try to pretend it doesn't affect them. But it does affect them because a lot of time, the crimes we see in northeastern Pennsylvania from petty crimes, small amounts of theft, robbery, even murder, they all have a route back to the same thing. Absolutely. And a lot of people are in denial about it, and they turn this blind eye to it. But the reality of it is, it goes back to gang-related issues. It goes back to, as you said, you know, small petty crimes. Sometimes people are doing those things just to get their next fix, but we want to change that. We want to find out what's going on with the violence, what's going on, why are you using. We want to be able to get even like the police officers involved that are, I'm sure they come in contact with the different people who are, unfortunately, are addicted to drugs and alcohol. We want, you know, these people to be able to come to the police officers comfortably where maybe the police officer could be able to say, hey, well, we know someone that can be able to help you. We want to have some type of card handout. I know that this is a service that is offered in other areas and they are very successful with it. And I don't believe in if it's something that's working in that area, why reinvent the wheel? Let's try that here. And if Wilkes-Barre City or Luzerne County, again, as a whole, is willing to try this where we can, again, get the Wilkes-Barre police as well as Kingston, Wyoming, all our local area police involved with us trying to 
offer the services, even like, honestly, the hospital just recently reached out to us and they was talking about how they don't know how to deal with, you know, patients that come in that are addicted. We want to be a resource for them so that if they need to contact us, we will be able to come up to that hospital and to help guide them and get them, help get the patient to the place where they need to be and help direct them and help that patient to feel more comfortable because sometimes people that's in the hospital, sometimes they don't understand addiction. And when they're able to reach out to us and say, hey, we need help, that's really a positive and a great thing. And we want to be able to be that resource for them. So again, that's another thing we are going to be offering um, the resource to be able to be be on call for the hospital. So if they need us to come up and to help them in any way at the emergency room, if someone is, is coming there, we, we want to be there to help them out. Yeah, because I've heard that in some cases when there is somebody that's brought in and they've overdosed, they release them from the hospital and that kind of cycle is repeated again and again and again. I think in terms of where you can come in is to try to break that cycle. And a lot of people look at this issue, though, Darlene, and they, they see a lot of failure in recovery. They see a lot of people who they're given every chance they can get, and they still fail over and over and over. How do you think you might be able to change that paradigm? I think, one, because, again, a lot of people have this stigma, and they look at people that's in recovery or people that have an addiction And they frown upon them. And I think that if we can kind of show them some support, even if that means don't judge them, just if you can guide them and send them to a path where it's going to help them, you're helping them. People don't believe that. But if you can show a person that's in addiction that you even slightly care, that's giving them a, a sense of hope. If you can tell them something that's positive, they may not listen right then and there. But believe me. They hear you. I know this from being a recovering addict. I know this from talking with people every day. They always say nobody cares. And we want to change that. And that's where it goes back to the stigma. We want to reduce that. If it was up to me, if I can change it to where I could, but I know that's unrealistic. But again, if we can reduce it and we can come together with a more open mind about how can we help reduce the stigma, that will help. Again, just guide someone. Even if you don't know, you just say, hey, I have a friend. They run YPR. They have a lot of resources. They can be able to point you in the right direction. If you need help, you need assistance with going into rehab, Darlene can get you there. We know someone that can help you. That's helping someone. Don't, you know, frown upon them and and, and say something bad. Help them out. And that's helping them by doing that. So, again, any way that you can to help instead of shunning them away, that's what's going to give this community hope. And some people may not believe it, but it really it really is true. Talk about the event you have coming up. Our kickoff is going to be at 47 North Franklin Street. That's going to be downtown. It's called the Downtown Arts. We're going to have live music. Cluster Funk is going to be um, doing a duo with Mike Miz and Paul Martin. We're going to have um, guest speakers, and one of our awesome, awesome, awesome guest speakers is going to be Mr. Michael Donahue and also other great speakers. 
speakers. We're going to have some a whole lot of information tables. We're going to have a photo booth, raffle baskets. You're going to have some refreshments, some pizza, hot dogs, some sodas. We're going to have a whole bunch of stuff, so please come on out. So all are welcome. Darlene Duggins Magdalinski serves as a chapter lead for Young People in Recovery, which will host an event on Sunday, May 21st from 2 to 5 at the Downtown Arts Building, 47 North Franklin Street in Wilkes-Barre. You're listening to Special Edition on Entercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. It wasn't long ago that the future of Camp St. Andrew in Tunkhannock looked very bleak. After the 2015 season, the Diocese of Scranton announced the camp, which they had run since 1940, would close due to declining use by young people. Enter United Neighborhood Centers of Lackawanna County. The organization leased the camp from the diocese for the 2016 season, then assumed ownership of the facility. It's now known as Camp Kelly to pay tribute to Monsignor Joseph Kelly, who was instrumental in its success. We recently discussed the venture with two representatives of United Neighborhood Centers of Northeastern Pennsylvania, starting with its CEO, Michael Hanley. Well, actually, United Neighborhood Centers here in our community was founded in 1923. And we're what's called a settlement house agency, which is a grassroots community-based agency serving the needs of people where they are, assessing what the needs are and developing programs. So we are also part of a, actually a national movement that started in the late 1800s in Chicago and New York City of settlement housing. All independent nonprofit organizations working in the neighborhood levels in many of the larger cities. Here we were founded, as I said, in 1923 by members of the Bethel AME Church, which uh, is right across from Cooper's. It's, uh, I believe, the oldest African-American church here in our community. And they founded our Progressive Center, which was the first center that we started. A year later, there was an organization over in Lower West Side, the Bellevue section, that founded the uh, Big Sisters organization, which is now called the Bellevue Center. It served actually a a large Eastern European immigrant population and and heavy Jewish population in Lower West Side and the flats of South Side back in those days. So since then, we have really grown exponentially throughout Northeastern Pennsylvania. Most of our work is in Lackawanna County. We run child care centers for working families. We have senior centers uh, throughout Lackawanna County. We do crisis intervention for families. We have uh, community youth programs. Uh, in our community centers for just kids walking in off the street. A community health program that helps people navigate through the health system. So all of those things are, are things, some, some newer, some, uh, some we've been doing since the very beginning. Project Hope Summer Camp Program, which we're here to talk about a little bit, was actually founded in 1970 by Monsignor uh, Joe Kelly. He was the president of uh, United Neighborhood Center's board at the time, and the bishop sent him to Camp St. Andrew to run that program. So he figured, well, he was going to camp anyway, so he took kids from our Progressive Center and our Bellevue Center to camp with him. And so that was the beginning of Project Hope, which has now expanded. Uh, At one time, we were serving 550 children from throughout Lackawanna County, busing. We had 10 buses that were going up from the county up until just two years ago. And then because of funding issues, we had to to cut back on the number of buses. So now we're serving about 350 kids with a goal and a dream of getting back to our 550 again. So it was uh, quite a surprise to us two two years ago when the diocese came to us and uh, said that they were closing Camp St. Andrew. They didn't feel that they really wanted to run a, a, a youth camp up there anymore. And so they offered to uh, to basically sell it to United Neighborhood Centers for a nominal fee. 
So we really jumped at the chance to be able to do that and now can continue to operate Project Hope, a tremendously important program for, uh, for many of the low-income kids in our community. And now we've taken up uh, the, uh, the resident camp that the diocese has traditionally done and tried to expand it. And are really committed as an agency to making this work and to make it work for a larger part of the community than what it had been in the past. When the, the diocese came to you about this, what were the biggest challenges structurally as an agency? I mean, it's, I think it sounds great. Okay, we're going to have a summer camp. But what did you have to do at that point? Did you make an assessment of whether or not it was feasible to do it? And I'm sure you really wanted to do it, but what were some of the challenges that you had to face when that was given to you as an opportunity? Yeah. Well, for uh, I think one of the biggest challenges was we've never done a uh, resident camp. Uh, so this was our first foray into this. And uh, actually, the way this kind of played out is the diocese was not ready to turn ownership over to us last summer, so they agreed to rent it for to us. So we were able to, to operate the, uh, the, the resident camps on a rental basis without making the full commitment. Um, so that was probably the, the, uh, the most interesting part of the transfer is, is, bring, is, is taking on a whole new program like that. But it really was a very successful summer. One of the other challenges we have up there is it's an old camp. I mean, it was founded in, I believe, the late 1930s or 1940. It needs quite a bit of work. So we've started doing some of the renovations. We've had tremendous support from the community. Uh, people have really stepped forward and donated uh, some sponsoring a cabin and uh, different buildings up there. And so we're really trying to bring it up and renovate it. Uh, new bathrooms, new shower rooms is our goal, and some of the structural needs for some of the buildings that need to happen. So those are the biggest challenges, I think. That's Michael Hanley, CEO of United Neighborhood Centers. We also spoke to Kelly Langan, Director of Camp Initiatives, about the upcoming season. I'd never gotten the opportunity to be a camper when I was a kid, and I'd always wanted to be. And so when I turned 18, uh, I got an opportunity to be a counselor up at Camp St. Andrew, and I, I jumped at the opportunity and... I've been there ever since, so this will be my 10th summer working at camp, and I'm really excited to kind of come back. So just, you know, it took it took one week to, to draw me in and know that that was the place that I wanted to be working. So you have an affinity for this, this camp in general from your experience, although you weren't a camper as a kid. You got involved and you were there for a while. What draws you to it initially, or what is special about it to you? Yeah, I think for me, when I, when I go to camp, I... I just become my best self. And I don't know how that happened. I don't know if it was because of the people I was surrounded by or because of the, the location, um, just kind of being outside, being able to kind of let loose, having less responsibilities than I did in my, my daily life with school and work and all that. And I think that having a, a group of kids that, that I'm working with, I was working in the girls' camp, so having a group of girls and encouraging them to be their best selves at camp was uh, really motivating for me because I could see the girls become more confident and more kind to one another just in, in a one-week period of being at camp. In terms of the kids who go that you, you plan to see this summer, I imagine that for some of them, this kind of experience of being out at a place like Camp St. Andrew is very uh, baffling for them, but exciting. I think a lot of kids are, are nervously excited about coming to camp for the first time. And I think we'll have a little homesickness in the beginning, but they make it through that first night and they, they really start making a connection with the other kids in their camp or in their cabin and um, they kind of create a little family that kind of supports one another. They get to spend a lot more time outside. They may have their cell phones with them, but they don't have any service, and so they can't really rely on that. And I think that they end up having to rely on, on human connection instead of that it, 
that connection to technology. It's shocking. Yes, yeah, yeah, it's new for them. <laughs> the kids, how old are they? Where do they come from? We have kids from all over. Many of them come from Lackawanna, Luzerne, and Wyoming counties. Um, but we do have, uh, we have a large group from the Phoenixville area out by Philadelphia. We have some who come in from New York. So we do have kids who are coming from a, a larger and larger area. And typically our campers are between second grade and 10th grade. Um, so it's a, a large range of kids that we have at the, our overnight camps. Tell me a little bit about the kids. Are they mostly from cities? I would say a lot of the kids are from the, the Wilkes-Barre area, and a lot of the kids are from the Scranton area. So they, you know, they're, they're used to, to pavement and cell phone service, and, and that's stuff that we, come, we grow accustomed to uh, when we're living in the cities, for sure. How do they find out about this camp? For a long time, it was just word of mouth. The Diocese of Scranton, when, when they owned the property, did very little advertisement, and at least in the 10 years that I'd been there, I don't think they were paying for any advertisement at all. And we still filled camps every summer, and I think that it was just through word of mouth. A kid had a great experience, and so they went home that, that year, and they told everyone at their school. And then that's how our Phoenixville group started. We had one or two kids who came because their parents had been campers. And then the next year, we had five or six. And the next year, we had 10 or 12. And um, those groups just grow from word of mouth. And I think now social media is a big part of how they hear about us, um, definitely through, through other campers, former campers, uh, talking about the programs. How is your camp different than what the diocese did? We do a lot of things. Uh, we plan to do a lot of things the same way that the diocese did it. We're working on adding some some new programming for some of our older campers. Um, the the interest was waning in some of our, our ninth graders specifically, and so. We added some new programs for them. We have a senior camper program in our resident camp where the older campers will get to have a, a little sister in one of the younger cabins, and they'll be able to kind of check in on their little sister and take care of them. And then also, as a group of ninth graders, they're going to come up with some sort of activity that they're going to run for the younger campers at the end of the week. So they may throw a party for them, or they may have a game planned for them, whatever they think their little sisters are going to enjoy. So that it gives them a little bit of agency at the camp. Um, so that'll be new this year. And in our basketball camps, we're going to be doing a similar thing for ninth graders. So we're going to have uh, what we're calling the team experience. And so if a ninth grader comes with a few of their teammates from their high school team, we're going to give them special team time on the court where, where they will have team instruction in addition to the individual instruction that all of our basketball camp campers receive. And then they'll also have special chalk talks with the coach about what it's like to go through high school on a basketball team and then ultimately to go into college on a basketball team in case they're interested in that. For the other individuals who attend these camps, what can they expect? What is the week like? For the resident camp, if you, you know, picture a traditional camp where they're doing archery and they're hiking and doing campfires, that's exactly what they're going to be experiencing. And for our basketball campers, it's very much like a basketball clinic that they would go to at maybe a local college. And the added bonus is they, they also get to do some of that camp experience. So they'll spend a lot of time on the courts, but they'll also get to go out in the woods and have a campfire at night. They'll also get to try out our rock wall and our zip line, and I think that that's really exciting for them. In terms of, you talked a little bit in the beginning of the interview about how this can, can change young people. In your opinion, um, what, what do young people need to be more 
fully formed, and especially in the summer where they might just be in their rooms playing video games. What do you think needs to happen, or how does this change them when they come and they spend time with you? Yeah, so the three things that we're focusing on, and, and we train all of our staff in this, is we're focusing on confidence, connection, and character. And so I think connection is, is the most surprising piece for the, for the kids sometimes. So they, they get to camp, and they, they're not used to looking somebody in the eye when they're talking to them. They're used to looking at their phones when they're talking to someone. And so we're really focusing on that connection piece um, in the in the past few years and trying to get them to, to feel comfortable looking somebody in the eye or giving someone a hug when they need it and, and things like that. And then the, the confidence piece is, is really easy to do at camp because we, we just encourage them to be whoever they are and to be that well. And developing character is one of the pieces that we do. We actually have a, a daily session where we're focusing on some quality. So maybe that quality is, is just being a warm individual, right? And so that entire day, our staff know that that's the, the theme of the day. And so we're working on, on being extra warm and showing different ways you can be a warm individual. And then for that 30-minute period, we're actually doing different exercises or crafts or things like that that kind of focus on that, that quality we're trying to achieve. How is this paid for? Well, most of it is paid for through um, the the campers registration fees. We're funding our uh, renovations through our capital campaign, um, which is ongoing. And we're just trying to make sure that we can continue the camp just based on those registration fees. Is there a sliding scale for lower income or anything like that? So we don't currently operate on a sliding scale um, base. We do have camperships, uh, a limited number of camperships available for uh, families who wouldn't be able to afford camp otherwise. And we've awarded a number of those for this year already. Talk a little bit about the Boys Resident Camp. Sure. So we're really excited to bring this program back. It hasn't been around for at least 20 years now, we know for sure. And um, it's actually how Camp St. Andrew started was a Boys Resident Camp. And so we are bringing it back this year. We've got uh, two cabins of boys so far signed up to to run this, this Boys Resident Camp. And they're going to have the opportunity to do a lot of the things that we do at our girls' resident camp. So they're going to be able to climb the rock wall and do our zip line. They're going to be able to to try out archery and then also work on the character connection and confidence that we talked about earlier. Is it different just because it's all boys, I guess? Yes, yeah, so we've not had a, a boys' resident camp specifically. Our only boys' camp in, in the past number of years has been a basketball clinic. And so for boys who aren't interested in basketball, they had kind of been left out. And so this is kind of inviting them back to the camp property and, and designing a camp just for them. People need more information. How do they get it? They can go straight to our website. Um, we do have a Facebook page and we have an Instagram if they're interested in those things. But they can go to uncnepa.org slash Camp Kelly. You know, I, I'm, I plan on telling a couple campers that it is named after me. <laughs> But we named camp after Monsignor Kelly, who, who put so much work into camp. He, he founded Project Hope, and he saved camp. I know they were considering closing in the 90s, and, and he, he wouldn't let that happen. And we really appreciate all the work he's put into it. Kelly Langan is the director of camp initiatives at Camp Kelly in Tunkhannock, the former Camp St. Andrew. For more information, visit the website www.uncnepa.org. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. 
Although retirement is an important life goal, seven out of 10 adults are concerned they won't have enough money for their golden years. Others want financial guidance, yet may be hesitant to reach out for help. Sally Balch Hermy knows better than others about strategies for retirement. First, she recently met that milestone. And second, she's the author of a new book, Get the Most Out of Retirement, Checklist for Happiness, Health, Purpose, and Financial Security. She spent more than 20 years as an attorney and told us about travel, housing, and financial preparedness. One of the things that made me feel comfortable that I could uh, sort of step into retirement a little bit earlier than I had planned was that all along I had been saving in my IRA and working to make sure that I had a comfortable cushion because one of the key things that is kind of frightening about retirement is that all along you've been saving uh, looking forward to social security and whatever income you might have the point is that you've got to move from saving to spending of that uh, nest egg that you've been building so a constant from as long as possible to be saving for retirement and then realizing you need to start spending your savings. Is there ever a moment when people can no longer get involved in some kind of saving? Because I received a message from somebody that said, too many people where we live have or only will have Social Security. This person says they prepare taxes and they see many people do not contribute to their pensions or future and will have nothing when they do retire. So how do you advise people to at least try to do something? Well, every bit that you save helps because while you're still working because of the benefit of compounding interest. Does what you save continues to grow? It's hard very frequently to find that extra money to put away into savings, but cutting back if you at any way can to sock some money away will make your retirement much more comfortable. There are a lot of people who are living uh, only on their Social Security benefit, and no matter how much that Social Security benefit might be, it is never it's never been intended to fully make your retirement uh, comfortable. Another important thing to do as you are approaching retirement is to cut down and at least not build your debt and start working on paying it down as much as you can because the interest that you have to pay on debt works against you uh, because it is just more money that you have to pay to get rid of the principal on your debt. Yeah, so get uh, aggressive, I guess, with that debt payment, because that could be a huge burden in retirement if you're still carrying a a lot of it. And you're right, maybe scale down a tad when you're uh, looking toward the finish line, right? Yes, you want to have the least amount of debt going into retirement as you can physically manage, because those debt payments that you have to pay with restricted funds during retirement is 
more catastrophic than the debt that you're paying now. Okay. Uh, your book talks a, a lot, and there are great places where people can write notes in it and, and things like that. It's, it's very, very well organized. I could see you're a little bit of a control freak, which I admire. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, you tell people to get the most out of their retirement by using a 15 key steps in order to achieve the goal. Do a lot of people, Sally, get to retirement in, in kind of a way where they're driving through their life at 70 miles an hour and suddenly they're going zero and it's a huge, huge adjustment that they hadn't expected? I definitely think that retirement should not be a, a huge zero. And that's one of the key things that I try to uh, encourage people to do in thinking about what they're going to do in retirement. Uh, retirement may, uh, to many people, be a time to slow down, but it doesn't necessarily mean you ought to come to a full stop. Planning on what you want to do, who you want to uh, spend more time with, thinking about how you can continue to contribute to your community, however you define that committee, that community, is really a significant part of planning for how retirement's going to be fun, how it's going to be beneficial to you. Your identity does change when you step out of the working world, but in many circumstances, the best thing to do in retirement is to strive for a new identity, going back to school, doing that travel you wanted to do, contributing through volunteer activities, spending time with your family. These are all things that can make sure that your retirement is not a full stop, but it's a new direction. In terms of uh, the people making decisions about where they will live when they retire, and this is part of, uh, I would call, in what you also call the adventure that happens after retirement, are a lot of people, Sally, deciding that they do want to make a significant move at retirement. And I, I guess that there are places in the United States that they can do so, maybe uh, economically that are a little bit more feasible for them than maybe where they live now, but also out of the country. Can you talk about that trend or that kind of movement with retirees? Moving out of the country is certainly... Uh, an interesting adventure. It is something that I have some cautions about. At least make sure that you spend some time in the new possible location, particularly if it's a dramatic change of environment. Go in the worst season <laughs> to make sure that um, the other season the non-touristy season is to your your liking. I encourage people to spend an extended amount of time, let's say, renting or, or leasing property before actually making that more permanent jump of moving, permanently moving and changing your residence. You need to be sure that you have a clear idea of to what, what kind of just the daily living expenses are going to be. Are you going to have sufficient funds to support your lifestyle? If you're considering to 
buy property, you need to be sure that you check with the embassy of the new country as to any restrictions on foreigners owning property. Mm -hmm. Uh, You also, a good idea is to make sure that you have a very good conversation with the um, embassy officials as to what kind of visa you would be able to obtain. Some countries encourage our retirees to come. Others are concerned that they you're not going to become a drag on their uh, society and want to be sure that you have sufficient ongoing resources to be able to maintain yourself and not become a burden on the new society. It's also important to check out whether the health care that you will need is going to be available and how much it's going to cost. Sometimes the health care in another country is equivalent or and maybe even cheaper than uh, what it is in the United States. But um, everyone has to keep in mind who are of a retirement age that Medicare is not going to cover you if you move out of the United States. Those are really good things to remember. Sally, is there a place in the United States right now that is kind of hot for retirement? Is there a place that's become very popular? I know Florida, where we live, obviously seems like a great option because it's, I don't know, there's eight months of winter where we live, so people get a little bit sick of it. We live in uh, northeastern Pennsylvania, and it's cold a lot. Uh, is there another part of the country where people are finding uh, an affordable place to go and uh, communities of, of other individuals who are also retirees? Well, there are lots of... I think people are not so much moving to Florida, perhaps as much as uh, they used to. They're exploring other Climbs, other locations. I know that a lot of studies show that people like to move perhaps to a smaller but vibrant community such as a college town Hmm. because college towns have lots of arts and entertainment and the option to take classes. So I would say that probably one of the draws for retirees is into college communities. That mix of generations, the vibrance of the young kids, plus the multiple opportunities for culture and education and intergenerational experiences probably is one, is a magnet. I know communities in North Carolina and in Colorado have been uh, attractive draws. There are lots of places on the web to, um, that have, you know, best places to retire that are perhaps not the normal Sarasota, St. Petersburg, mm-hmm. Orlando kind of of draws. Well, I'm, I'm glad to see that there is a little bit of an evolution on that, and I think it sounds like a great idea. Now, you also have a, a chapter in your book uh, about money and, and finances, and um, how important is it that 
you you think and I it's it's I guess it's very touchy. But how important is it if you do have some assets that you think beyond your own life at the point of retirement and protect some of those assets so maybe they don't get uh, turned over to the government at some point instead of to your heirs? And I know a lot of people never want to have this conversation. Studies, particularly through AARP, clearly show that there are two primary goals that people have. One is to make sure that they have enough money for themselves to live the in the lifestyle that they wish, but also they really want to have the opportunity to leave some sort of legacy to their their children or to their grandchildren or to particular charities or institutions that have been meaningful in their in their life. So, at least in my view, I want to be, it's my money for me to spend Mm -hmm. to make sure that I can live the life in retirement that I wish. But I also want to be sure that I have enough money that I can leave at least some lasting legacy to my kids. Currently, the tax uh, laws allow a significant amount of money to escape estate taxes. So only really the very wealthy, those that have over a million dollars, need to be actively concerned about particular saving strategies to avoid having um, the government take a share of what you wish to pass to your kids or your grandkids. That is author Sally Balch-Hermy, who wrote the new book, Get the Most Out of Retirement, Checklist for Happiness, Health, Purpose, and Security. You are listening to Special Edition on Entercom Communications. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 